I love the third service. We have a lot of the younger people here. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Our Grow 401 class is um, going to be starting soon. That's the class where you learn what your spiritual gifts are, maybe take a little test and stuff like that, and see how that may fit into the church. Sign-ups are outside or, or in the patio or on the website. Um, also today, if, if you don't have lunch plans, um, plans, or if you already do have lunch plans, I'll cancel that because you have lunch plans now. Immediately after service, if you go out into the patio, we have taco, uh, chips and drinks and such, um, sponsored by the men's ministry. So head on out there and have lunch. Um, and also, if you're relatively new, we have a thing called First Lunch, and that is with one of the pastors where we try to get to know you and vice versa. You can talk to one of the welcoming people uh, for that. Okay, we're going to start off with an important question. Okay, this is a very important question, so you need to pay attention, all right? Um, this is not a trick question. It's not a, a rhetorical question. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a right and wrong answer, but it does uh, have an answer that's important, and depending on how you've arrived at that answer, okay? Okay, let me ask this question. Do you have... Enough faith. Do you have enough faith? This was a question asked on the cell group discussion uh, last week, I believe. Do you have enough question, uh, faith? Some of you will answer this question by a no, and you just don't believe you have enough. Whatever faith tends to be, you know, you're not quite sure if you have enough of it. Others of you say, yeah, I think I have enough faith, but at the same time, you're not super confident because who can say, after all, you know, enough faith? That's partially the, the question we're going to try to answer today. You know, we've been in the book of Romans. It's an important book. It's an incredibly deep book. And in chapters 1 through 3, these are the two things that we've discovered so far. Number one is this, that every person, every single person in this room, every single person that you know, your grandmother, uh, your neighbor, uh, the little boy that you ran into today, every little person in the world is guilty, deserving of full condemnation, and is incapable of saving, uh, saving self. The second thing we learned is that not, it is not on the basis of a person's righteousness, but it is on the basis of the righteousness of God, we are told, that a person can be justified or uh, be made good enough through redemption, propitiation, and demonstration. Those are some big theological words that we uh, threw out last week, and if you don't know what those are, you can go back and listen to the message. Now... Uh, we, so last week we said that someone could be justified, made good enough before God. But how does that happen? And in the previous passage, in verse 22, 25, and 26, we learned that it is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith of the one who has faith in Jesus. By the way, um, in this passage, uh, when it says believe in faith, it's from the same Greek words. The faith is noun, believe is the verb. So we can be justified or made right enough, uh, and how that is applied, it is through a thing called 
faith. And so, do you have faith? And if so, do you have enough faith? If you have not done so yet, would you turn your Bibles, would you fire up your app to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Romans chapter 3, verse 27, and we're going to be looking at that um, until the end of chapter 3. It was supposed to be a part of last week's passage, but well, there was just so much there that uh, we're covering it today. Verse 27 in the ESV reads, Then what becomes of our boasting? So after having talked about justification, and in verse 26, it, talks, uh, it, it ends by how God is both the just and the justifier, someone who is fair and merciful, uh, just and loving at the same time um, uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's the gospel message. And if that's the case, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And he introduces this concept that there are two laws, the law of faith and the law of works. And, and justification uh, by Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, is the law of faith. But he says there's an opposing law of works. And so we're going to be looking at those two things, all right? Let's look at the law of works today. He implies that humanity defaults to the law of works. Both the religious and the irreligious people operate from this law. We, people believe there is a principle of reward and punishment uh, depending on life performance. If you, draw, if you are driving on the freeway and someone uh, cuts you off, speeds and drives recklessly, and as you keep driving, you see him pulled over by a state trooper getting a ticket, and we drive by, and what do we think? Oh, karma, man. Good for you. And karma is a Hindu, a Buddhist theological uh, term. It, uh, it means that we, des- we are getting what, we've, what we deserve depending on what we did the previous life. So if you were born in a horrible situation and your life is horrible, karma in, in those uh, philosophies says that you must have been a terrible person in your previous life and that's why you have such a terrible situation today. Karma says also that if you live a great life today, in this lifetime, the culmination of that uh, will result in when you are reborn, um, you will uh, be born in a very comfortable situation. You will be born in a great situation. So basically you're saying what you, um, you get what you deserve. Verse 27 says, the law of faith excludes boasting and what it's then implying is that if you have the law of works, that somehow promotes boasting, okay? So I want to talk about the law of works and how um, it creates not only boasting, but a sense of failure, all right? Uh, so let's look at the first uh, impact or effect of the law of works. Um, a person who... Uh, lives under the law of works. I'm going to just call them right now workers. Uh, workers fall short and become failures. Workers uh, fall short and become failures. Most honest people, listen, I believe that most honest people feel um, that they have fallen short of whatever religious, philosophical, life philosophies they have. 
Uh, they have dr- uh, drawn a line of what is good and what is bad, how one should live and what, uh, how one should not live, and most people fall short of that. Most honest people at least do. And so they walk around with a feeling of guilt or inadequacy. You know, a long time ago, there was a movie. Uh, it was uh, very famous and won a lot of awards. And a few weeks ago, I was uh, channel surfing, and I caught the end of this movie. And I, so I sat and watched uh, the end of the movie. And some of you younger people may, may not have seen it. So if you have never seen it, go back and watch it. It's a great movie. Um, it's a movie called Saving Private Ryan. And remember, Saving Private Ryan, great movie, right? The premise of the movie is this. Uh, a family had four sons. Three of them got killed in action on, on D-Day, which is uh, when the Allies uh, storm um, Europe again in order to capture Europe back uh, uh, against the Germans. And three of the brothers died, so there's one uh, brother left, and the army decided, the military decided that no, no, this family can't lose all four in one day, so let's bring Private Ryan back home. Okay? And so they dispatch... Uh, a character by the name of Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is great in this movie. To go um, and find, it's like a, you know, like a, a needle in a haystack, to go find Private Ryan and bring him back home. And so Tom Hanks is dispatched, and uh, he, he gathers a small group of people, and he goes out and searches for Private Ryan on the way they lose soldiers. And once they find Private Ryan, um, uh, they decide they're going to engage in this particular critical battle in which they have to hold the bridge against the incoming Germans. And while they do so, they lose more people. And so uh, with a small group of like soldiers that they began, uh, a good majority of them are are dead. And if you remember the scene, for those of you who've seen it, uh, Captain... Uh, Miller, Tom Hanks, has been shot up. He's sitting down, and he's dying. I didn't remember this particular scene before, but uh, before that, uh, Private Ryan, played by um, uh, Matt Damon, in the, the fiercest portion of the battle, Matt Damon is, is like in a fetal position, just crying, weeping with fright. This this particular soldier that so many people have given their lives to, to save. Um, they thought they were all defeated, but the uh, Allies uh, start bombing the German tanks, and so they win. Uh, but Tom Hanks is dying, breathing his last, and Private Ryan comes over. Uh, Tom Hanks grabs Private Ryan by... Uh, his caller, and he says, as, as so many of their fellow soldiers and friends have died, he says to Private Ryan, earn this. Earn it. Referring to so many of us have given our lives to, to save you and bring you home to mama. Now earn it. I remember when I watched this movie a long time ago, I thought, That's just, this is so inspiring. Wow, what a calling, a purpose. I, I think I, a long time ago, I even showed that particular clip uh, on a Sunday, like, earn it. And I don't know what it is, but perhaps it's because I'm a lot older 
and I've lived a, a good chunk of my life. And as I was watching it this time around, this is the thought that I came um, with. If a dozen or more of my friends, one by one, shot, stabbed, murdered, so that I can live, so that I can go back home to mama, and in his dying breath, the, uh, my commander, my captain, a man, a man more virtuous than me, grabs me by the collar and says, Steve, the last thing that he says is, earn this. This is what I would think. Would I be able to go home, go to a Starbucks and get a grande latte? sit down and comfortably drink that, knowing. Can I, at the end of the day, slip into my nice clean sheets and sleep? Can I play with my kids or, or grandkids um, at the same time thinking that so many people have given their lives so that I can live, go back home to mama? I don't know about you, when, perhaps when I was 40, I thought I could earn it, but at 56, 57, if my friend had uttered those words to me, it would haunt me. What I would think is, there's no way I can earn that. What can I possibly do in my lifetime that can earn that? I, I would live the rest of my life with a sense of, uneasy guilt and I would feel forever insecure like another failure like I haven't lived up to it if you remember that scene the last scene is Tom Hanks um, uh, you know um, uh, Private Ryan is now an older person and they go back to Normandy and they find the cross of Captain Miller where he's memorially buried and he, he, he's talking and his wife comes over and he desperately says to his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've earned it, but I, I'm telling you, I don't think anyone could earn that. You know, it's interesting, the kind of people Jesus meets. He oftentimes uh, meets two kinds of people. One of the groups of people that he encounters are those who I think, feel like failures. They're sinners, they're prostitutes, they're lepers, they're tax collectors, they're poor. And in that uh, very religious, theocratic nation, those who suffer in that way oftentimes do so believing that they're being cursed by God. If you're a, a woman who can't have children, if, you, if you're diseased and dirty, you feel like you're being cursed by God. And you walk around with a sense that you are a failure falling short. And even those that sometimes are well-educated, have enough money, um, have uh, a certain degree of popularity, but I believe many of us walk around with this immense sense of guilt, insecurity, and meaninglessness, a sense of which my life is not good enough. When we operate out of a law of works, we find ourselves 
feeling like failures. On the other hand, there's another group of people that Jesus oftentimes meets with. Um, not only those who feel like failures, but there are those who feel like they've succeeded in life. That whatever standard they, they've created for themselves, they feel like they've done well there. And they are oftentimes portrayed in the New Testament as the Pharisees or the religious elites. That they feel like they were good enough and they not only have a pride in their accomplishments and so their pride results in them boasting and, and workers uh, succeed and become boasters in that way. But what happens is when they become boasters, they look at those who don't have success and they look at others with disdain. It is the kind of feeling uh, that many of us have when we look from a distance to those who are immoral, criminal, homeless, and lazy. You know, most of the people here in this room, we're too polite to out, out say it. But listen, uh, you know, those, those of you who are raising children, I believe that there are times we say these things and we're, we're communicating a certain uh, law of works mentality. We say to our kids, listen, if you don't study, if you hang out with bad friends, if you make poor decisions, you will turn out like them. And we're talking about the immoral, the lazy, the criminals, and the hopeless. As if we are teaching our kids and we um, enforce that in ourselves and the way that we live, that we are justified, we are made right, we are, uh, we are made good enough if we succeed in life uh, financially, educationally, in, popular, in popularity. You know, the problem with success is that we, we set these standards up and we become arrogant when we achieve it and, and we look down on other people who don't achieve it. You know, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, talks a little bit about his own biography. He says in 3 verses uh, 5 and 6 that he has no confidence in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, you know, I am of the right ethnic group. I was educated in, in private education. I uh, was uh, raised in a very religious home. And it's not a stretch for him to say that he was, right, he was blameless under the law. But he says later on in verse 8, but he considers all of his worldly, earthly achievement as rubbish. The Greek word is skubalon. It's also tra uh, translated as refuse dregs and dung, D-U-N-G. You know, we don't use the word dung. And, and really the common word that uh, translates is S-H-I, because we have catapult students, S-H-I tomorrow, right? <laughs> Paul looked at all of his worldly achievement and he said, it's a pile of poop. It's a pile of scubalon. I don't know why, but we spend uh, much of our lives trying to accomplish things and, and we forget that when we 
at the end of our life when we are to stand before God's judgment seat, he's not going to say, well, what was your ranking in high school? He, he's not going to say, what college did you end up going to? God's not going to ask, well, how many Facebook friends did you have? What was your zip code? What, what kind of achievements did, did your kids have? It's, it's interesting how we spend so much of our life energy on things that in the end will not justify us. And the things that does justify us, we take for granted and we have no control over. <clears throat> you know, um, um, most of you know that I had a series of heart um, procedures done and they're called stenting. And so my arteries were clogged. And so what the cardiologist did was he would take a catheter, uh, punch a hole in my little blood vessel in my wrist, uh, and with guided wires, somehow magically, amazingly, I, just, I still don't understand this technology, and at the end of this catheter is a camera, a light, um, and they would somehow guide this wire through my arm, through my, my shoulders, somehow get it into my heart, and in the right position where it's blocked, they would take a balloon and just blow it up so that it enlarges, so it unblocks it. And then they would take it out, take another piece of the catheter, they would go right back with like a wire mesh thing that goes in small, and when they get to the exact right place, increase it, let go, and so there's this wire mesh. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, I've had three sets of procedures done, and apparently the third set of procedure was uh, technically the most challenging but most effective in that um, where I had already some stents. He, the, the, my cardiologist went back in, oh, you know, made that long journey, went through an existing stent, passed it, and put a few more stents in. Amazing. You know, of all the things that have happened in my life, probably the most life-saving thing that's ever happened in my life, I I'm guessing was that. Perhaps my third or my, or my first uh, stent, angioplasty. But you know, it's strange because I don't boast about it too much, although it's amazing. And the reason being is I actually did nothing. I... Um, I uh, was given some anesthetics, and I was kind of like drowsy while they were doing it. I couldn't move because they had me immobile. I was trying to kind of stay awake to try to figure out what's going on. I was very curious. But really, I did absolutely nothing. The only thing I did, the only thing I did was sign. I give my cardiologist permission to poke my wrist and insert a long metallic wire into my body and poke things into my heart. And I just trusted my cardiologist to save my life. You know, we only, Tim Keller says, we only exclude boasting when we realize that our best achievements have nothing to justify us. 
and the things that really do justify us we had nothing to do with. That is the law of works. Now let's talk about the law of faith, the law of faith. A, a person who lives according to the law of faith, I believe, uh, understands two things. The first thing that they understand is that uh, believers do not trust in their own works. Believers understand that they cannot trust in their own works. And the reason being is that um, a, a believers know that the a law of works does not work. Believers understand that the law of works does not work. Let me explain to you how the Jews thought. The Jews believed this. A traditional Jew believed that uh, they're, ba- they're, they're saved on the basis of good works. And of all the good works that they can do, the most critical of the good works that they could do is that of circumcision. It is like the defining religious thing. And among the Jews, you know, many of them became Christian. And so what they did was, oh, okay, we, we need to believe in Jesus Christ. And so we'll believe in Jesus Christ, but at the same time, we'll, we, we're going to still insist on circumcision. And so they believed, well, you know, we need to be saved by faith, but we also need circumcision. Now, Paul poses this question, verses 29 and 30. Why don't you look at that with me? He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He poses this question to the, uh, to the um, Jewish Christians in Rome. Are, um, are Gentiles and Jews both Christians? Can they be saved? And, and the answer is yes. Now he asks this question to uh, the Jewish Christians who thought this very important act Circumcision was paramount to salvation. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? So he's asking this question now. You have the uncircumcised Gentiles and the circumcised Jews. If they're both saved by faith, what is it that saves them? Is it circumcision? And the answer is obviously no. Because one group didn't have circumcision. So what he's saying is that what you have relied on so much to save someone, to, to justify them, doesn't really justify. Now, let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not an intellectual agreement. Sometimes we believe that if we just have the right answers, that, that is faith. Sometimes we believe it's an emotional feeling that if we raise our hands during worship, where uh, one of my pastors used to, friend, uh, to say that some of, the things we, some of the songs that we sing in church, it's like saying Jesus is my boyfriend type of a concept. It is not simply sincerity, and let me explain that later on. Just because we're sincere, that doesn't mean we uh, have saving faith. Nor is it effort that oftentimes we think, you know, I just need to have better faith. I just need to try harder. Like, I'm going to believe more. You know, we can have a lot of those things. In fact, James chapter 2, 19 says, you believe that God is one, that you have good theology. But he also says that even the demons believe and shudder. That you can have great theology and, and, the, uh, and the, the demons have great theology, but it doesn't save them.
The problem is oftentimes we believe certain emotions and certain knowledge or like intellectual agreement, uh, like if really sincere, um, if we try just even harder that that's what will save. If I, if I try harder to just have faith, I'm, I'm gonna have faith that that will save me. You know, um, occasionally I, I meet new people um, and they ask me, you know, where I'm from. I'm, I'm, I say, well, I'm, I was born in South. I, I, I said I'm Korean and they asked me, well, um, Korean American. And they, said, they asked me, are you from South Korea or North Korea? It's an, it's an innocent question. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I was born in South Korea. But if they would have asked my father and mother where they're from, uh, they can technically say, well, they're North Koreans. Because both my uh, mom and dad were born and raised in uh, North Korea. And it is during the Korean War that they both fled. Um, and in fact, my father left family in North. Um, and uh, like an interesting fact about my father's uh, family that he had multiple brothers and some of them f- ended up fighting for the North and some of the other brothers fought for the South. And so uh, those who ended up in North, we, we, we never saw again. If someone were to ask me if there's a country I would like to visit before and I die, I, I would say that it's, it's North Korea. I'd like to visit someday. Um, hopefully after reunification or something. But let's say I, I decide, you know, I, I really want to visit now. And so I'm going to do my best to try to visit North Korea with my effort. And so what I do is I take uh, my car and I go uh, the closest that I can in California to North Korea and I end up at Santa Monica. <laughs> and so I, I you know, park my car there. I go to the, the, uh, to the place where it juts out furthest into the Pacific, Pacific Ocean, which is Santa Monica Pier. So I go to the edge of Santa Monica Pier. I look at my Google map and try to figure out where North Korea is from here. I figure, okay, in a 17 degree, like that way. Like, mm, there's North Korea's there. And if I somehow jump hard enough, I can land in North Korea. And I decide, you know, I need, I need to do my best. And, and, my, and so what I do is I buy new Nike Air. I get some cool shorts and I get tank tops and I get myself and I get a coach and I get into this regiment. I stretch and I exercise. Um, I, I practice long jump. I, I learned that if you get a running start, you can jump a little bit further. And so on a given day, I said, okay, I'm ready to go to North Korea. And I take a, a running jump and, and to the direction of North Korea because I have knowledge. And I really mean it. I'm not just kind of faking it. I really want to go there. And I jump as far as I can. And because I've exercised, I've trained for this, I make it as far as maybe 15 feet. And I would end up in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, of course. Perhaps I'm the world's best uh, uh, running broad jumper, uh, one who set the Olympic record, world record, and, and that person could maybe jump a little less than 30 feet. But do you understand where I'm getting at, right? No matter how knowledgeable we are, no matter how sincere we may be, no matter how emotionally vested I am, no matter how hard we try, we are physically unable to accomplish something like that. 
when Jesus was talking to a rich young ruler, the rich young ruler asked, what can I do to earn eternal life? And he said, you know, a bunch of things. And he said, I can't do that. Exactly, Jesus is saying. Because you try to do enough to earn your way to heaven. It's kind of like a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's impossible. What we oftentimes try to do is the impossible. A believer who has saving faith understands, first of all, that the law of works does not work, that we can't do it on ourselves. And so what is it that we need to do? Believers trust not in their own works, but they trust in the work of Christ. If we look back on the words that I read earlier from 22, 25, and 26, let me read again. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith of the one who has faith in Jesus. By the way, in the New Testament, when we're talking about believe and faith, um, it's the same word, but one in verb form, one in noun form. Okay, I want you to notice uh, what I had just read. It is not just faith that's without a, an object. Like, it's not like, I'm going to have faith, like, mm, I'm going to be nice, but I'm going to have faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Saving faith, thus, is when a person stops trusting in the self or all others to save, but rather putting trust in the work of Jesus to save. The, the Protestant reformers believed that saving faith had three essential elements, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. They're all Latin terms. Uh, I could have mispronounced all of them, but none of you would know because you don't know Latin. But it kind of means knowledge, acceptance, and trust. In order to have saving faith, we need to have knowledge. We need to kind of know that uh, man is depraved, in need of salvation, and Jesus is not simply a good teacher, or a good example, or a prophet, but he is the son of God who came and died as a propitiation and a, uh, an atonement uh, on behalf of mankind. We not only need to know that, we need to accept that. We need to genuinely believe that Jesus is the Savior, he is who, him, he, whom he claims to be. And finally, and most importantly, we need to lean our trust in it. That we, we trust in Jesus Christ and what he did to save us, to justify us. If, if you're interested in knowing, you know, how, you know I, I want to become a Christian, or I want to maybe talk to someone, um, listen to me, okay? Remember these numbers. Romans 10, 9, 10. What did I just say? Romans 10. Okay, let's try that again. Romans 10, 9, 10. Let's try that again. Romans 10, 9, 10. If you ever like are talking to uh, someone who says, I want to know how to become a Christian, what do you need to look up now? Romans 10, 9, 10. Okay, great. You're, you're all great evangelists now. This is what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you will be justified. For the with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. He's talking about juxtap- uh, juxtapositions of what we like believe in our heads and in our hearts, and what we uh, do with our volitions. 
by confessing. One night, a, a house caught on fire, and a young boy was forced to flee to the roof of his house. There's a lot of smoke, a lot of flame. The father happened to, uh, was outside in, uh, in the front yard. He saw his boy uh, in the midst of the, the smoke and the flame, and the father called out to him, jump, I'm going to catch you. But the boy protested because he couldn't see his father amidst the smoke, and he said, I can't see you. And the father replied, but I can see you, and that's all that matters. Faith is sometimes us not being absolutely sure what we're, uh, what we're uh, jumping into, but trusting in Jesus Christ and the work that he did. So here's the question again, do you have enough faith? And so if you say, I understand now, Pastor Steve, what Romans is saying, that I'm, I'm incapable of saving myself, um, and so I don't want to have faith in myself, but, and I want to have faith in the finished work of Jesus. I want to trust him. But how much trust can I put in? What's enough trust? Right? That's a good question, isn't it? Now, and this is what's going to surprise you. Because to the rich young ruler, he says, sell everything. He just made it sound impossible. Now, on the other hand, in Matthew 17, 20, he says this. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, and let me describe what a mustard seed is. When in that particular culture, an author or a speaker wanted to describe something that was infinitesimally small. In our, in our culture, uh, we, if we want to um, uh, say something is like microscopic small, we would say it's like an, an, an atom. Or What's smaller than an atom now? I know there's a bunch of things like um, quantum physics and strings and stuff like that. Saying, Boy, it's like small. In that culture, in order to describe something that was extraordinarily small, the smallest thing that someone can relate to, they say, like a mustard seed, it's the smallest uh, agricultural seed that they knew. He's saying, if your faith was so small, it compares to a mustard seed. He says, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If my, if my seed is my faith is that small, it's still effective. He says in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. He said, wait, wait a minute, how much does a little child know? What did a little child do? That he can jump off the end of the Santa Monica Pier and land in North Korea. Can he accomplish that which I cannot? A father who had a sick child so desperate to heal him. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes immediately. The father in Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. And then he says, help me in my unbelief. I believe, but I know that my faith is weak, unbelief. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Like if we, we ask ourselves a question, is my faith Big enough, good enough, strong enough. And he's saying something just tremendously important here. It is not the extent of your faith, the size of your faith. It is not how big or deep your faith is. Because if you rely on, listen carefully, if you're relying on your faith to save you, your faith is not good enough. And so if you answer the question, do you have enough faith? And if you answer the question, no, you're correct. 
Your faith is not good enough to save you. But Jesus has been saying, if your faith is like a mustard seed, if it's like a little child, even in your unbelief, God will help you. As long as your faith is not in yourself, your faith is not in your faith, your faith is not in others, but your faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are taking notes, let me fly by a sea and then let me get to the conclusion. Believers trust and become worshipers. Believers trust and become worshipers. Um, and this is an obvious conclusion that if we, if we live according to the law of works, then we'll become either arrogant or we'll uh, despair. But if we realize it's not from us, but God did it for us and it's his finished work, then um, we'll become worshipers of Christ. Uh, let me conclude with this. And I'm going to ask the, the, the band to come up at this time as I finish with this. Okay. The question that we began with is, do you have enough faith? Do you have enough faith? And some of you answer, no, I, I don't have enough faith. And um, your answer is right, because if you believe that your faith saves you, or if, you, if it depends on the degree of faith, you don't have enough. If you answer, yes, I have faith, enough faith, well, it depends. If you believe that your faith in yourself is enough, no, no, that's wrong. But if you believe that your faith is sufficient because not in your faith, but the object of your faith is Jesus. Listen, we began with the question, do you have enough faith? Perhaps the better question is, whom do you have faith in? Whom do you have faith in? That is the better question. It's not if I just believe more, but do I have faith in Jesus? And so, you know, uh, Living Hope, um, every uh, first Sunday of the month, we do do this thing called communion. And I think it's so appropriate because um, when... Jesus was with his disciples, and it's like a, uh, a template. Um, he sat around a bunch of guys that are just so unqualified, and, and he knows that one is betraying him, one will deny him three times, the other will all run away. He knows their faults and inaccuracies. He knows that they don't have enough faith. But he passes the bread, passes the cup, and said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this because it's my finished work that will ultimately justify you. When the band begins, that's the cue for you to come up, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and go back to your seats, and we'll partake of communion together. If you are not a Christian, if, uh, I would ask you to observe and perhaps have a, a conversation with one of us today.